Well, we come today to the final sermon in our series on 1 Peter. Um, the previous one was a few weeks ago, so you, it was, uh, we looked at the elders, what I call the eschatological elders, the elders who shepherd the flock, waiting for this crown of glory at the chief shepherd's appearing. We're at the passage right after that passage this morning, and here Peter strikes a lot of the same notes that he struck from the beginning of the epistle. So we'll make three points. They're there on the outline in your uh, bulletin. Humility, resistance, and glory. Humility, resistance, and glory. So first, humility. So we're, we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He starts with, in the same way. Now that, that should sound familiar, right? A reader of 1 Peter's ears would perk up. Um, it links this passage to everything that's gone before, in the same way. So we would ask ourselves, in what way, exactly? And hopefully we know this now, right, from this epistle. He means after the pattern of Christ, after the way of the cross, right, in imitation of the suffering witness of Jesus, right? This is the way of free men, Peter said. This is the way of the servants of all people. So that's the pattern, right? First to servants, and then he said, in the same way, wives. And then in the same way, husbands. And then he said, finally, all of you. And here it's in the same way again. In the same way those who are younger. Submit yourselves to your elders. Probably the whole church regardless of age, is conceived here as younger in the sense of the whole church is summoned to submit to the work of the elders. So you might remember, it was a a while ago, but back in chapter 3, Peter says this, finally, finally, he's kind of summing up the beautiful life, finally, all of you, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and be humble. And here, he echoes that back. All of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So what does he envision, right? He envisions a kind of free, mutual subjection. What an extraordinary community this would be, right? Any community, right? Where everyone is clothed in humility toward everyone else. What a beautiful vision. I mean, do you think that mutual humility is crucial to Peter? I think it is. He he repeatedly calls us to it throughout the book because this is what the way of the cross looks like in everyday interactions. Sometimes the way of the cross might seem like an abstraction or you know, something only Jesus could accomplish. But we're, we're called to it, not just in times of persecution and suffering, but at every point of life. And it looks like being clothed in humility toward every person. Right, so Peter, again, calls us to this way of forsaking prestige and power for the way of service, for the imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, then, is the heart of the church's public and political witness in 1 Peter, clothing oneself in humility. And so you have have this language, 
of clothing yourself, it seems to refer, scholars think, to a servant tying an apron on, right? And the idea for us is that humility, it doesn't just happen. You have to put it on and repeatedly put it on. Right? No one is going to clothe you in humility. You have to dress yourself in it. And, of course, the grand example here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in the hour of his betrayal, in the teeth of his enemies, right? Cosmic and political, religious forces arrayed against him, right? In that hour, he lays aside his outer garments and girds himself with a towel as a household slave. So there is, one scholar said this beautifully, he said there is a, a need, a global need for humility. There is a global need for humility. Right? James says the absence of this sort of thing is tied up to, war, to there being wars. Now, we often hear there's a, need for, there's a need for the church to do this, and there's a need for that, and there's a need for this, and there's a need for this kind of person, there's a need for that. Well, you know what we don't hear? That there's a global need for humility. Humility never cracks the top ten of the list of things people tell me that they think the church needs. For Peter, it is right at the top. There's a global need for humility. So clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And there's a deeper rationale here. Why, why do this? Peter says, because God opposes the proud. But he shows favor to the humble. Right, this is a frightful thing, because we, if you know your own heart, we know we're proud creatures. Pride clings to us in a million different ways, visible and invisible, and God sets his face against it. God is opposed to the proud, because the proud despise others, or treat them with contempt, right, or look down upon them. He gives grace, Peter says, to the humble. Right, the beautiful thing about humility is its sanity. Right, We've spoken about this before in here. It's, it recognizes our need for grace, and then it flows out of that grace. I think the essence of it can be seen in a, in a passage from the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 4. Listen to what the Apostle says. For who makes you different from anyone else? Just think of how probing that question is. Who or what is it that makes you different or better than anybody else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Right, that just cuts the legs out underneath of all superiority. Right, all, I can't believe that person did or, or holds or thinks this way, and I can't believe this, and I can't believe that. What do you have? What do we have? that we haven't received. And if everything we have is pure gift, why do we go around boasting and setting ourselves up against other people, lacking this being clothed in humility? The essence of humility is acknowledging your dependence as a receptive being, that everything you have comes out of the free generosity and goodness of God. And once we see this, we can see that pride in a creature, in a creature who can't keep themselves alive, 
Pride is a monstrous thing. It's just a bizarre thing. But we tend to swim in it. So the apostle says, humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God. Here it's even stronger than clothe yourself. It's humble yourself. So I'm going to make this very simple. Um, You want to be humble. Then humble yourself. It's not rocket science. Actually, Peter thinks you can do it. You know, in one sense, you don't want God to be the one who makes you humble. Right? There's a sense in which Peter's saying, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. Because at some point, God will humble you, and that will be unpleasant. He doesn't think it's impossible. He doesn't think it's rocket science. He says to the church, do it yourself. Humble yourself. Right? Adopt this deep self-distrust. What we're after here is the spirit, the breast-beating spirit of the publican, right? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? Because we've got that other spirit in us that says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that person who does this and who does that. I do this and I do that. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We've said it here before many times, but I'm going to say it again. You are the worst sinner that you are going to have to contend with in your life. Right? It is not somebody in your life. It is not some other person. Right? The Apostle Paul says, I, at the end of his life, says, I am the chief of all sinners. You don't see Paul in his letters worrying about this person's sin or that person's sin unless it affects the corporate church, right? He's really concerned about his own soul before God. And that's what the, that's what the publican is like, right? It's, there's this famous little Eastern church prayer called the Jesus Prayer, right? You, some of you know it, I know, right? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There are, there are Eastern monks who chant it Hundreds and hundreds of times a day. I'm not recommending that, but you should know that prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So take this posture, Peter's saying. Take this posture. Humble yourselves. under the Notice the mighty hand of God, the exodus-making hand of God, and he'll lift you up in due time. This is just another way of saying what Peter said repeatedly. Suffering, then glory. Humility, then exaltation. It's the the basic descent, ascent pattern that marked our Lord's life. The, The humble one who is now lifted up and exalted. So notice this as well in the text. It says, he will lift you up in due time. In due time. Now... Yes, perhaps. There's ways he lifts us up now, this hour, this day, tomorrow, next week, of course. God is not humiliating us, right? He's making us humble. There are two different things. He humbles us so that he might lift us up, and as lifted up, we remain humble. But ultimately, due time for Peter is the end, right? Because Peter's been focused on the end from the beginning. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? You've been born into a heavenly inheritance. The end of all things is at hand. 
Right? The final judgment has begun in the church. So when Peter speaks of being lifted up or exalted, he's ultimately talking about this final open vindication with Christ in glory. Part of this is just simply necessary, right? Because many, many saints, surely the great majority of saints who've lived, are not yet openly, publicly vindicated or exalted. Right? That's why the martyrs in heaven in Revelation are praying for their vindication. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you shall avenge our blood? They're waiting. They're waiting. So humility waits for the Lord's act of raising and lifting the church up. And we're lifted up. We, we come upon our inheritance. We partake of the exalted glory to come together. So, there's an interesting turn in this text. What does the humble person have to do? Well, it's interesting. He says, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. It might not be the first thing we think of when we think of humbling ourselves. Of course, Peter is citing our Old Testament lesson, Psalm 55. Cast your cares on the Lord. He will sustain you. Now, this requires humility. You know why? Because we love to worry. We love to carry our anxieties around. It's, this is actually a thing connected with pride when you dig underneath it. We think somehow it shows how much we care. Like if we're super anxious about things. Well, I'm just, just texting my kid just to see, they're, see that they're all right. I, I want to make sure they got there. I texted them eight, 18 seconds ago, but I'm going to just text them again. right? So we have the ability now to worry permanently about everybody. All the time, you can be perpetually anxious, but it really just shows how caring we are, how invested we are, how adult we are, how realistic we are, right? But let me tell you this. Anxiety is a sickness, right? The, the great British theologian John Webster said that anxiety is the shadow of our capacity to hope. Right? You have this capacity to hope built into you as a human being. You hope for your children. You have hope for your marriage, for your grandchildren, for the country, for the kingdom of God, for the church. But as soon as that hope launches out, you realize it's, there's a certain fragility to it. You can't control it. So immediately, hope gives birth to a whole array of anxieties. Right? And so anxiety then becomes something like a parasite that sucks hope out of your life. It's a kind of forgetfulness. Right? And what it forgets is simply this. He cares for you. I know it's very simple, but we forget it a couple hundred times a day. So anxiety is always the fruit of somehow believing that God is either not paying attention, or he's lost track, or he's not acting, or he doesn't hear, or he's not really good, or he doesn't really love me that somehow maybe I'll be the first sheep that he's ever mishandled or forgotten about. And this generates anxiety. And so anxiety then seeks to do nothing less. We tend to think, I think, in a harried, busy culture like ours, that anxiety, A, just sort of goes with the territory. That there's just sort of an acceptable level of it that we should all just carry around. But the gospel says that anxiety is seeking to detach you from Jesus Christ from walking in his peace. But we heard that in the gospel lesson this morning, right? Where Jesus says, don't worry about your life. 
what, an, what a thing to say. What an opening sentence. Don't worry about your life, your food, your clothes, what you can do this. Look at the birds. Right? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And by the way, Jesus says, who by worrying can add a single hour to their life? Right? If you could, right, some of us would live to be 400 years old. Oh, I picked up nine hours today. Uh, you know, I've always loved this passage from Jesus because, you know, if you're like, if you're like me, um, your, your, your dad and your mom came from a, a, the responsible, you know, post-World War II generation, right, about responsibility and hard work and duty and all of these wonderful things, right? And then Jesus sounds here like some sort of 60s hippie, right? He's, he's like saying, I mean, imagine, I can imagine me saying this to my father as a young man. Well, Dad, I'm not worried about my life. I mean, look at the birds, Dad. I mean, they, uh, they, they fly around, and God feeds the birds. And look at the flowers. They grow. They're beautiful, these flowers. They're spectacular. They're heavenly. My Heavenly Father feeds me. Right? You say that to your dad. He's going to think, you're crazy. You lack fundamental responsibility. Of course, Jesus is, does not mean that. But he, does, he is cutting into this idea that we're responsible for everything by our labors, right? That your heavenly Father does feed you, right? That, that the, the flowers aren't worried, and the birds aren't worried, and neither should you. I mean, how, I mean, that sounds almost absurd to us, right? Because from the human side, for us, anxiety is natural. It's inevitable. And not having anxiety, living the way Jesus tells us to live in the Sermon on the Mount, that seems absurd. It seems impossible. And so Peter says, look, you have, to, you have to cast or you have to hurl your anxiety onto God. Because it's not going to just drift over there by itself. You have to take it. You have to throw it. Cast your anxiety upon the Lord. And know what will happen? It will keep bouncing back on you. Because we're very anxious. You're going to have to throw it again and throw it again. There's no limit to your pitch count. You just have to keep throwing it. Cast your anxiety or hurl it on God. Clothe yourself with humility. Strip yourself of anxiety. So that's the first point, humility. The second point is resistance. So here, verse 8, we're in verse 8. Peter says, be alert, of sober mind. He's a good teacher, right? He repeats the key points. He's already told us this. Chapter 1, gird your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded. And here again, vigilance, sober watchfulness, he says, are necessary in the Christian life. Not just because of anxiety, yes, because of that, but what, what else? Well, here we're up against this grand mystery. He says, because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. It's a, it's a very fierce, frightening image, right? It intends to infuse sobriety into us. Be sober because you have this kind of enemy. So that's how Peter's using it. He wants you to be sober. He's evoking the lions of the Roman amphitheater, devouring their victims. Of course, it's a great mystery because the principalities and powers are defeated, and yet they remain dangerous. You're up against, Peter saying, a kind of supra, above, rational, intelligent, angelic array of forces. And if that's the case, that should induce humility. 
Right? Our problems are not just ourselves or other people. Right? There's this cosmic principalities and powers dimension, which we tend to forget, especially in you know, the modern scientific West. So resist them, Peter says, standing firm in the faith. So what's he doing? He's echoing what Paul says about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Right? The apostle says, put the whole armor of God on. I often think this passage here from 1 Peter 5 is, is, is the apostle saying, look, there's another piece of armor um, that's not mentioned in Ephesians 6, and it's like a cloak over your whole battle array, and it's humility. Right? Might we not add humility as a piece of the armor of God based on this passage? Clothe yourself in humility, resist the evil one. Stand firm, Peter says. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say you have to defeat the enemy, right? Because Jesus has already done that. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Christ has plundered the strong man. He's bound him through his life and death. In his cross, the prince of the world is cast out, and he will finally destroy him at his appearing. So for now, we should think of this lion as mortally wounded. But he's tethered. He's got something of a long leash, but he is tethered. And yet, for all of that, he remains dangerous. So dangerous that John can say in his first epistle, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the great task of the church is to resist the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places because we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with these forces. So Peter says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Stand firm in the faith. Now, what does this mean? What does it look like? Well, it's, it's quite simple, right? Throughout the book, if we, if we get the mind of the apostle, we will see that this resistance means the way of the cross. Faithful imitation of Jesus Christ, right? Suffering faithfully, Peter would say, that is resistance. I mean, how did Jesus resist Pilate and the forces arrayed against him? And Peter says, he left you an example to follow in his footsteps. And do so, Peter says, notice this, knowing that the whole church throughout the whole world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. You're not alone in what is befalling you. You have a kind of international bond of solidarity with the church, which faces various afflictions throughout the world, Peter says. Now, this can sound kind of grim, but the ethos of it is joy. Right? Peter says, rejoice in as much as you share these sufferings, that you might be overjoyed when Christ's glory is revealed. And that brings me to the third point, which is glory. Glory. And here the letter comes to a very fitting close. This is a prayer, really a benediction. I've been using it as the benediction throughout this whole series. Um, so what does Peter say? He says, and the God of all grace, God of all grace, all of the stuff in this book, right? Sojourners, exiles, sufferers, right? All of these realities flow from the God who is gracious to us, who's been good to us, right? And the God of all grace is the one that Peter says calls us, you'll notice this in the text, summons you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is an immensely important word right here. 
And without it, I think the whole book would be difficult to understand. And without it, we could misframe the Christian life. This is the kind of phrase, I think, that if we're reading the Bible, like, devotionally, and we come across God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, you just slide right past that to the, you know, let's get, let's get to where he asked me to do something or something. Right? It seems almost boilerplate, but it's at the heart of what the whole book's about. So let me put the question to you this way. Now, we're at the close of Peter's book. He's a good writer. He knows how to finish. What precisely is it that the God of all grace has called the church to do? Well, I mean, there could be a long list of stuff. I hear lists all the time. The church has to do this, and the church has to do that. You know, usually it's some sort of cultural, political, or social engagement, or some other strategy for this or that. Those are legitimate callings of the church. But what God has summoned the church to, Peter says, now get this, is his own eternal glory in Christ. In short, God summons us to our heavenly inheritance. So when God calls a people, the calling has a goal or an end. The same, the same apostle in 2 Peter will say this, God calls you by his own virtue and excellence to become a partaker of the divine nature. Right? That is the summons of the church. That is what all other calls are subordinate to. All other callings in the Christian life are enveloped by this one central dominating calling. Put differently, God summons us to God. He calls us to himself, right, to face-to-face communion with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in and through Jesus Christ in glory. He calls you to his eternal glory in Christ. Right? This is what the writer to the book of Hebrews to the Hebrew Christians calls your heavenly calling. This is what Paul called the upward vertical call of God in Jesus Christ. Right? The call of God, the summons of God to Christians is a vertical thing right? that propels them up into the highest heavens before the face of God in Jesus Christ even now. So the glory... Of all flesh, Peter had told us earlier, is like a fading flower. But notice this glory. It's eternal, unfading glory. So this is not just glory in general, right? This is eternal glory, meaning glory which transcends time, glory which is unending, glory which is replete, full, Sabbath rest glory, immutable, perfection of the creature. That glory, which Christ himself is delighting in now, is what God has summoned you to. That is the calling of the church. Though you would never know it if you listen to people tell you what the church's calling is. He has called you onto his own eternal glory in Jesus Christ. And Peter himself speaks the same way the Apostle Paul does here. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 2. Paul at the end of his life. Paul in prison. Paul reflecting back, Paul who has suffered these long catalogs of afflictions that he documents for us. You want to know why Paul does what he does? He tells you. He tells you in prison as he's about to end his life, or very close to the end of his life. He says this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal 
glory. That is why there is ministry in the church, to gather the elect and to present them before the face of God in eternal glory. Paul says, I suffer everything for that end. This is why repeatedly in his letters, Paul says things like, so that you might stand in the great day, so that you might be my crown or my joy when I present you before Jesus Christ. Right? This coming splendor at Christ's appearance, this creation transfiguring glory of the city of light, that is just what the church is called to. That glory is the church's one hope. Her blessed hope, Paul says, is the great glory and the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what faithful elders were promised in the last text, right? Faithful elders are promised the crown of life which the chief shepherd will give at his appearing. And the text continues, after you've suffered a little while. Remember at the beginning of the book, Peter said, you're going to suffer for a little while, for a short period of time. But your suffering is designed to reveal glory when Christ appears. Right? Then, after the suffering, at the end of all suffering and warfare, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will, Peter says, restore you. Now, of course, God's already beginning that restoration act in us. That's what the Spirit is doing, restoring us, fitting us for everlasting glory. But he will bring you to complete, full wholeness. He will make all things right. He will not only restore you, the text says he'll make you strong. He'll give you strength. Jesus was crucified in weakness, raised in glory. So it shall be for us. He'll not only restore you and make you strong, he will make you firm. Firm, meaning fit. You know how fickle we are now, right? This is why we're so anxious all the time. Our wills go like this. They flutter, right? Firm here is a word which means utterly, immutably fixed in the good. Steadfast, secure, and immovable. In short, the God of all grace will soon crush Satan under your feet as he has already crushed him under the feet of Christ. So you resist him. You stand firm. And when the coming glory comes, you'll be fully restored and established. Peter's already told us back in chapter 3 that the mighty hand of God has raised Christ above all principalities, above all authority, above all powers, and the Christ who is exalted that way will in due time exalt you to participate in his exaltation and in his own glory. And ending this way, the apostles come full circle. He's come back to the beginning. With this, the elect exiles, the people of the diaspora, the scattering, having suffered, having obtained their living hope, their imperishable, undefiled, unfading, heavenly inheritance. They shall enter their eternal glory. Where? The angels, and we see this in Revelation, right? The angels, these beings of fire, and the 24 elders representing the whole church, and the four living creatures representing the whole restored and redeemed creation. 
day and night, unceasingly, without stopping, say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. I occasionally get asked questions like, all pastors do, right? Like, do you think we'll, we'll, we'll do this in heaven? Or they'll have that in heaven? Or we'll be able to do that in heaven? And it's, it's irresistible because, I mean, I think we all have these curiosities. Usually the answer is, I don't know. But I do know this, that the centerpiece of heaven will be worship, right? In Sabbath rest and in glory. Yes, the creation will be redeemed. Now, exactly what we'll do, you know, whether we'll need this profession or that, I don't know. Because I because I know what the book of Revelation tells me. It tells me that the creatures who inhabit heaven are perpetually worshiping God in his triune glory. And the saints who are going to be made strong and restored and firm in eternal glory shall conclude and join that chorus with the words that Peter here finishes with. To him be dominion and power forever and ever. Amen.